And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. We're back from vacation. Yes. Back from vacation, ready to dive back into... Horror. Yes. (laughs) A pool of blood. I really hope not. That it's so you know, like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> Only instead of gold, it's platelets. I mean, I don't know. Diving into a pool of gold coins, ignoring the physics problems of that, is probably only slightly less unhygienic <laughs> than diving into a pool of blood. Either way, I don't want to. <laughs> But you do want to do this episode, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. We have like, a great episode in store for our listeners. Cool. So, well, you don't want to dive into the pool of blood, let's dive into this week's movie. Uh, what are we watching? We are watching The Night of the Hunter from 1955. And we might be here for a while because this is a movie that does things like get listed the second greatest movie of all time after Citizen Kane on, like, critics' lists and things like that. Wow, I didn't know it was, like, considered that good. Yeah, I, I mean... I knew this was, like, a top-tier movie, but I didn't oh, know yeah. it was, like, that good. Yeah, I mean, it's not, like, unanimous, but... Lists never are. Yeah, but it's, like, up there. This is, like, some top-ten goat material, you know? So... Yeah, I'm super excited, and I'm very excited to talk about this movie, but there's a lot to talk about. So let's dive right in, uh, starting with the basis for the movie, because it's not an original story. Mm-hmm. The basis for the Night of the Hunter movie is the Night of the Hunter novel, mm. published in 1953 from author Davis Grubb. Davis Grubb? Uh, He was born in 1919 in Moundsville, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Now, he had a creative mind, which he expressed through writing and painting, despite being colorblind. Oh, interesting. He was born to a well-off family, with his grandfather being a founder of the Moundsville Mercantile Bank. But his family lost all of that with the Great Depression. Ah, Now, Grubb was around 10 years old at the start of the Great Depression, during some, like, significant years for someone who's growing up, and with that experience of his family losing everything, being evicted, um, his mother working as a social worker, um, and kind of getting that first-hand, or I guess it would be second-hand stories about economic hardship of people Mm -hmm. in the Great Depression, um... That was very influential on him, and so you see him being very critical of capitalism and organized religion through the rest of his life, uh, through all of his works. Sure. He attended the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh to follow his passion for painting and writing. Okay. I know that the name doesn't sound like it, but it, it is. Okay. Um, it is a place where you can do an art degree. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> 
However, his colorblindness limited his painting at school, so he decided to focus all of his attention on writing fiction. He would still do art, painting, sketches, whatever, through the rest of his life, um, but he was never able to really commit fully to it. Sure. In 1940, when he was 21 years old, he moved to the big city, New York, to work at NBC Radio, uh, writing radio plays, and then writing short stories in his free time. He had a lot of success with these short stories, getting published all over the place, and in the 1950s, he decided to turn to writing a novel. Inspired by the economic hardship from the Great Depression he saw and heard of through his mother's work, as well as the uh, notorious West Virginian bluebeard killer Harry Powers, Davis Grubb wrote The Night of the Hunter, which was published 1953. Okay, so it's based on a true story a little bit? I would say more inspired by, because a lot of the specifics have been changed, but the central idea of a guy going after lonely widows Mm. and murdering them for their money is the same. Right. Now, Grubb would be pretty familiar with the murderer, Harry Powers, because Powers murdered around West Virginia. Sure. um, But even today, he's kind of considered one of the most notorious serial killers in West Virginian history, if not the United States. Sure. Uh, Dude was... Awful and bad. So, As serial killers often are. I'm just saying this so that our listeners know that stuff's coming. Okay. Let me tell you about him. Yeah, for sure. I am ready for you to lay it all on me, true crime podcast style. <laughs> Powers was born in 1893 in the Netherlands, and at 17 he immigrated to the U.S. to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, later moving to West Virginia in 1926. The following year, he responded to a Lonely Hearts ad meeting, and then later marrying Luella Strother. Um, do you know what a uh, Lonely Hearts ad is? Yeah, it's a fucking Craigslist listing for, like, I'm back old. in the 30s. I'm old and lonely. Yeah. Uh, I'm an old maid. I have children or no children. They, yeah. They, come, they have previous relationships, usually. Please marry me. Yeah. Yeah. Older woman seeking young companion. <laughs> So he gets married, um, but this whole, like, correspondence gave him an idea. He began taking out his own Lonely Heart ads to target lonely women to basically murder them for their money. Got it. Young companions seeking older rich women in need of young companions. Sure. So he worked as a used furniture dealer Um, went on a lot of business trips, kind of a traveling salesman kind of guy. Right. And during that time is when he would um, put out a ton of these Lonely Heart ads, meet up with these women, romance them, and then bring them back to where he lived in West Virginia. Mm. Now, his wife didn't know about this because Powers had built a garage with a soundproofed basement. Okay. And upon arrival to his home, he would stick the woman and her children into this basement and kill the children quite quickly and brutally and um, have the women sign documents to put off 
to liquidate all of their assets and, like, get all of their money out and put it all to Power's name. Right, sure. Like, hey, let's get married. Uh, come back to my home in West Virginia so that, like, my town pastor can perform the ceremony. Hey, I've got all the documents to plan the wedding down here in my soundproofed murder basement. What? You s the, the bones over in the corner there? Don't worry about them. Let me just take your kids um, for fun playtime over here in the House of Horrors. Let me take them to Chuck E. Cheese while, while you, you sign these. Yeah, exactly. Don't mind the screaming. Yeah. He's suspected of committing up to 50 murders. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, you don't get to be notorious for Sure. For I nothing. mean, Jack the Ripper killed, like, what, like, six, nine people? Fifty's a lot. <laughs> what first got the cops tipped onto him is, in this murder basement, he had kind of two main rooms. One, where he kept the ladies and kind of starved them and got them to sign things and whatever. And then another room, which was basically a gas chamber. Where okay. he'd stick the children in if he didn't already beat them, um, because he would, like, crush their skulls in, and then gas them. He, there was, like, a um, a window where he could watch them suffocating. It was pr It's pretty sick. It's elaborate, though. Yeah. Uh, but what kind of tipped people off is um, this guy, his this neighbor, was complaining about a weird smell um, of the gas coming from the basement, uh, and the cops looked into it and... Yeah, they found pretty gruesome scenarios downstairs. Hmm. Now, there were only five bodies recovered from Harry Powers' garden. 50-year-old Aster Eicher and her three children, and 50-year-old uh, Dorothy Lemke. Okay. So, he was convicted for these five, but he's suspected of many more, and when police grilled him about it, he was like, you already have me on five, like... What's 50 more? Like, sure, I'm not I'm, going to tell more. Sure. I mean, it's it's always tough when you have, like, a situation like that where murderers will cop to, like, a lot of different charges because you can't give them the death sentence more than once. And, you know, police are often eager to, you know, be like, we have a lot of unsolved cases this year. Can we, like, make a lot of them go black by just having you confess? It's no real difference mm -hmm. to you. So... It's always tough with a lot of serial killers because you'll often see that kind of thing of like, you know, confirmed seven, suspected 48, like kind of thing. So the suspected in this case comes from the fact that they found the correspondence. Mm, sure. Um, he was, of course, using fake names, but a lot of correspondence. But these other victims' bodies were never found. Got it. Um, so the story of Harry Powers was covered in the newspapers in 1931. So this is right around the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And Grubb would be like 13 or so hearing right. about these murders. On September 20th, there was a lynch mob that attempted to break into the jail to lynch Harry Powers. Um, they were not successful. In December, there was a five-day jury trial where he was sentenced to death by hanging, which was conducted um, in March 1932. Okay. So, Harry Powers' story is pretty gruesome and intense. Davis Grubbs took that story, combined it with some of the economic hardships that many faced during the Great Depression, and wrote The Night of the Hunter. His main character, Harry Powell, so... 
close in name, mm-hmm. um, doesn't have like 50 murders under his belt, but it's pretty similar. Right. I mean, when you name the character Harry Powell, I think... It's you're, pretty close. Right. You're saying like, this isn't the guy, but you know who I'm basing this on, no matter how different it might be. Like if I write a book about an evil wizard named Ronald Frump, like it's still going to be clear <laughs> who my inspiration was. In the novel, Harry Powell is in jail, and his cellmate tells him about his last robbery where, you know, it got all the gold and all the cash and whatever, and it's hidden away from my family. That cellmate dies in jail. Harry gets out, and so he decides to pose as a prison chaplain uh, to go to his cellmate's widow, Willa Harper, to try to figure out where this money is hidden. And his cover story of, like, knowing about the money is, uh, is the chaplain, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so he marries Willa um, and tries to get her or the kids to share where the money is hidden. He does end up killing Willa and begins hunting down the children to get them to say where the money is. Okay. So it was published in 1953. Um, because of the novel's depiction of the American South during the Depression and using Southern Gothic tropes to explore social issues, uh, it won the 1955 National Book Award. Okay. Um, It was very well-received, very well-regarded, and that's pretty impressive considering it's his first novel. Right, yeah. So while Grubbs would write an additional nine novels, including 1969's Rules Parade, adapted to film in 1971, starring James Stewart, Mm Mm-hmm. Night of the Hunter remains his most well-known piece of work. He did, of course, like I said earlier, have a ton of short stories out and about. Um, A few of those were adapted by Hitchcock for Hitchcock Presents and Rod Serling for Night Gallery. Sure. If listeners are interested in those short stories, there were 18 of these short stories published posthumously in the 1989 anthology You Never Believe Me and Other Stories. Grubbs, unfortunately, died at 61 years old from cancer, so in 1980. Mm. Um, So pretty young, but that does mean that he was alive to see this movie. Mm -hmm. It was made two years after his novel was published. Yeah. So it also means that he would have been alive to see the film adaptation of Fool's Parade as well. Yes. Yeah. So he's not like a Charles Dickens kind of famous. No. But he was very successful as a writer and was well off. Yeah, and the book was like well known and well regarded already by the time this movie was made. Absolutely. So the process of adapting the novel to film began when Grubb's literary agent, Harold Matson, uh, sent a copy of the book to theatrical producer Paul Gregory. Gregory was born James Lenhart in nineteen twenty. He went to Hollywood after graduating high school and began working as an assistant. In that career, he sparked up a friendship with actor Charles Lawton, and he ended up organizing a lecture tour across the United States for Lawton. The actor's career was in a very rough patch at this time, and so this tour uh, in 1950 was very successful and ended up netting the two of them $200,000, which was a pretty big deal. Uh, And it enabled the two men to embark on other theatrical projects, 
such as the stage play The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which gave James Garner his first acting role. Oh, cool. So Gregory was a producer of stage plays who had an existing partnership with Charles Lawton. We last saw Lawton in 1951's The Strange Door with Boris Karloff. And as we mentioned in that episode, the 56-year-old actor's movie career had stalled somewhat, and he no longer commanded the prestige that he once did. Since that film, he has appeared in five movies in the four years since. Which seems pretty impressive nowadays. Low for the period. Very low for the period, yeah. Yeah. Uh, His most notable roles in that time were as King Herod in 1953's Salome, starring Rita Hayworth, and reprising his role of Henry VIII in the film Young Bess that same year, which was like a movie about young Elizabeth. Where Lawton was having greater success in his career at this time was in returning to theater. In 1950, he staged a play called Don Juan in Hell, which he directed and also starred as the devil in. Uh, That play was a great success, so he began directing theater with Paul Gregory producing, including the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. So around this time, that's what he's doing. He's directing theater. After reading Night of the Hunter, Gregory sent the book to Lawton, who loved it and felt it was a nightmarish Mother Goose story. So Lawton traveled to Philadelphia to meet with Grubb, And the two of them hung out for five days discussing ideas for a film. Cool. Grubb drew, like, sketches for inspiration. Um, Lawton asked him, like, you know, how did you picture this scene? How did you picture that scene? So Grubb did all these black and white sketches, which Lawton ended up using most of as storyboards for the film. That's dope. Yeah. To get the rights to the novel... Uh, Gregory paid Grubb $10,000 for an initial option while he hunted around to try and find studios interested in financing and distributing the film. Did he hunt at night? Probably not. Probably more during office hours. Okay. (laughs) Lawton wanted to play the role of Harry Powell himself, but Gregory convinced him that they weren't going to find distributors and investors if Lawton did that. Um, because, That's how far his star had fallen? Yeah. He ended up getting like a little bit of a bidding war going between Columbia and Warner Brothers, but eventually they ended up going with United Artists okay. um, to distribute the film, who put up the rest of the budget, which was $600,000, and Gregory then paid grub an additional 75000 to actually make the film uh, now that the option had been picked up. It would be, you know, obviously Gregory's first time producing a film, Lawton's first time directing a film. So they formed a little company, Paul Gregory Productions, and the plan was to do uh, two movies. This was going to be the first one. Lawton wanted Grubb to write the screenplay at first, um, but Gregory and United Artists felt that it should be someone with a little more experience writing film. Yeah, Grubb would have written, like, um, radio plays, but those would also be much shorter. Yeah. And a much different medium, honestly. 
So Lawton hired a writer named James Aggie, who was a 46-year-old writer from Knoxville, Tennessee, who had experience writing films, and it was also felt he had experience with the South and the Depression. Aggie's father had been killed in a car accident when he was six, and he was educated at boarding schools, most notably an Episcopal school where Aggie began his love of history and writing. Despite difficulties throughout his education, he was admitted to Harvard, and after graduation, he was hired by Time and moved to New York. He started out as a reporter, uh, although in 1934 he published a book of poetry. Beginning in 1936, Aggie began writing about the Great Depression, spending eight weeks among sharecroppers in Alabama. What began as an article ended up becoming a book called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which was published in 1941. Afterwards, uh, Aggie switched gears into writing film criticism for Time Magazine, which he became very well known for. Uh, He championed filmmakers like Charlie Chaplin. Uh, He was one of the few critics who was really into Monsieur Verdot in 1947. Um, Aggie also championed the films of Laurence Olivier in the U.S., Um, Hamlet for sure, but especially Henry V. Um, And he also was a big fan of Buster Keaton, and his writings have been credited with reviving interest in Buster Keaton's career in the 1950s, um, because he'd been kind of forgotten. He absolutely had been. Aggie's writings were collected in 1958 in a book called Aggie on Film. His attempts to break into writing films began with a script that he wrote for Charlie Chaplin that was going to be a post-apocalyptic tramp movie. Oh, boy. About... Like, the world being devastated by nuclear war, and then, like, the tramp going around in the post-apocalypse. It was going to be called The Tramp's New World. Uh, That went unproduced, as you might imagine. Um, He was an alcoholic, as well as a heavy smoker, and his alcoholism definitely hampered his efforts to make a name for himself and get work. Um, But... He did contribute to the screenplay for The African Queen in 1951 and was nominated for an Academy Award. After writing the script for Night of the Hunter, he wrote a novel, A Death in the Family, which was inspired by the death of his father, but that novel would ultimately be published posthumously as Aggie died of a heart attack on May 16, 1955, um, basically caused from a lifetime of heavy drinking and smoking. Um, So he died two months before Night of the Hunter would be released. Oh, that's too bad. Aggie's script was 293 pages long, which would make for a nearly five-hour movie. Oh, oh dear. Lawton made rewrites to the script, um, but these were largely editorial in nature to cut the length down. Later accounts of the making of this movie have often stated that, like, Aggie was fired, that, like, Lawton completely rewrote his script, that, like, no one was happy with it, and all these kinds of things, and that, like, the reason Lawton isn't credited in the movie, and Aggie is, is because Lawton felt bad because Aggie died, and so he insisted on Aggie being the only one who was credited. None of that's true, because researchers found Aggie's 293-page first draft, And 
all the scenes in the movie are in it. It's, they just trimmed down. It's just a bunch of stuff's been cut, and what Lawton did was rearrange the structure and create the, like, connective tissue to get between the stuff that Aggie wrote uh, after cutting all these things out. Okay. Um, another issue that required a lot of rewrites was the production code. Um, Paul Gregory worked very closely with the PCA to try and ensure that the film met code guidelines. The biggest issue was the depiction of a preacher as an evil person. Yeah. So a lot of care was taken to show that the character of Harry Powell was not a real ordained minister. Even still, a lot of Protestant groups uh, opposed the film's production. Joseph Breen uh, said in his initial review of the script that it would be very difficult to film the novel as, quote, the character of Harry Powell, the itinerant revivalist, is in violation of the production code inasmuch as it portrays a minister of religion as a murderer as well as some kind of sex maniac. <laughs> the PCA also objected to the film's ending, well, which is the ending of the novel, which depicts a um, lynch mob lynching Harry Powell, uh, similar to what was attempted with Harry Powers. That was not cool. Uh, and so the ending was changed for the movie in such a way that Harry Powers, Harry Powell goes to jail, but his lynching is implied? Mm. That being said, although the script was approved by the PCA, the final report of the commission did say that they were considerably disturbed by this screenplay as it is written and urged them not to make the film at all. <laughs> That's what they're going for, you guys. You're supposed <laughs> to feel a little disturbed and perhaps horrified. The Protestant Motion Picture Council declared this study in human terror will be offensive to most religious people. <laughs> Lawton... Uh, in directing the movie, had a very particular goal in mind, which was that he wanted to bring back the power of silent films. And he prepared for filming the movie by watching original nitrate prints of classic silent films, particularly the movies of D.W. Griffith. Okay. To build the film's cast... Lawton didn't hold traditional auditions. He just brought actors in for interviews to talk to them and get a sense of, like, who they were and what they were like, and then cast based on that. Okay. Um, as a director and actor yourself, what do you think of that approach? I bet it has a lot to do with being an actor himself and having worked in Hollywood for, like, decades by this point. You know, if I was Charles Lawton, I'd be like, yeah, I know that that person can act. I've worked with them on these movies, or I've seen them in these movies. Like, I know their deal. I just want to get to know them and see if there's someone I want to spend, you know, three months with. Sure. The second choice for the role of Harry Powell after Lawton Himself. was ruled out was Gary Cooper. Oh, dope. But Cooper felt that such a villainous role would be damaging to his career. Sure. Has uh, he been in High Noon at this point? When's High Noon? Yes, High Noon would have been like two years before this. Yeah. John Carradine was also super interested in the role. Amazing. Lawton and Gregory weren't super interested in him. 
They probably worried that he would bring too much camp. They were probably worried that no one would go to see the movie or assume that it was like a B movie. Oh, you know, fair. They probably wanted people to come come see it is the thing. Um, one person who was super interested in the role was Laurence Olivier. But Olivier was booked solid for two years and Gregory and Lawton couldn't wait that long. Shows that there's a lot of buzz about this movie, though. Mm-hmm. Probably because the book had been such a success. Robert Mitchum campaigned hard for the part and eventually won Lawton over in the interview when Lawton described the preacher as a diabolical shit and Robert Mitchum said, present. (laughs) Grubb was concerned that Mitchum was too sexy for the part, uh, but Lawton replied, if you want to sell God, you have to be sexy. I can picture Lawton saying that, honestly. (laughs) So, Robert Mitchum was born in 1917 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. His father was killed in a rail yard accident when he was a year old. As a child, Mitchum was a shit disturber. He got into fistfights, he committed pranks. His mother basically gave up on him and sent him to live with her parents when he was 12. He was expelled from middle school for brawling with the principal. At which point he left his grandparents and moved in with his older sister, Annette, in Hell's Kitchen, but was expelled from high school and ran away, hopping train cars and working odd jobs as a laborer. He was arrested for vagrancy and put on a chain gang in Georgia. He then escaped and returned to his grandparents in Delaware, Recovering from injuries sustained in his escape, he met Dorothy Spence and fell in love. But once he was well again, he just took off and rode the rails to California. His sister Annette had gone there hoping to be an actress, changing her name to Julie. There needs to be a movie made about this guy. (laughs) Mitchum joined her in L.A. in 1936 at age 19. She convinced him to join her theater company, where he worked as a stagehand, as well as a bit player, and began writing poetry. (laughs) The the idea of this guy writing poetry is very humorous to me, because he seems like such, like, a tough cookie. Sure. He married Dorothy Spence in 1940, and she came out west to be with him. They had three children and Mitchum found work as a machine operator with Lockheed Aircraft during the war. His hearing was damaged by the work in the factory, and he suffered temporary blindness after a nervous breakdown caused by work-related stress. So he stopped working at Lockheed Aircraft and began working as an extra in the movies. From there, he slowly worked his way up, playing soldiers in war movies, Uh, heavies and goons in, like, crime movies, uh, going from, like, extra to bit player to supporting actor. By 1944, he was being groomed to be, like, a Western villain. Sure. By RKO. Uh, And they loaned him to United Artists in 1945 for a film called The Story of G.I. Joe, where he plays a world-weary soldier. This was his biggest movie yet, And it ended up earning Mitchum an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, which rocketed him to stardom. He 
he made his way out of westerns and found his greatest success in the genre of film noir, making a large number of them in the late 1940s, climaxing with his starring role in 1948's Out of the Past with Kirk Douglas. Also in 1948, he was arrested for possession of marijuana in a sting operation by the LAPD designed to catch a number of Hollywood partygoers. But in the end, Mitchum and actress Lila Leeds were the only ones arrested because all the rest of the actors had been tipped off. Mitchum was sent to a prison farm, which he described to reporters as like Palm Springs but without the riffraff. The conviction was then overturned in 1951 by L.A. courts after the arrest was exposed as being a setup. Mitchum's films, after returning from prison, were box office hits, perhaps because his tough guy film noir persona didn't clash with the public persona of being arrested. Yeah, if he had been like a white hat cowboy, for example, it yeah. would have been a completely different story. Exactly. In 1955, he was fired from the film Blood Alley after he showed up to the production office drunk uh, in the morning and the transportation manager didn't have a car ready for him to use to get to set. So Mitchum threw the man into San Francisco Bay in a rage. Oh my god. Producer John Wayne fired Mitchum and replaced him with himself. It was after this that he campaigned to win the role of the preacher in Night of the Hunter. While he was considered one of the finest actors of 1940s-50s Hollywood, Mitchum felt acting was very simple. Uh, Show up on time, know your lines, hit your marks, go home and he expressed annoyance and puzzlement at fellow actors who viewed the craft as challenging or hard work. (laughs) He's of the Bogart school of acting. Right. He once told an interviewer that he had two styles of acting, on a horse or off, uh, and when asked about, like, how he changed himself to fit, like, a persona of a role, he said that the only thing he changed was his underwear. His performance in Night of the Hunter, however, is considered to be the best of his career by many critics. Awesome. For the role of Willa Harper, uh, a number of actresses were considered. Betty Grable, Grace Kelly, Agnes Moorhead. Oh. But Lawton chose actress Shelley Winters for her vulnerability and also because he felt she was a real actress and not just a movie star. Shelley Winters was born Shirley Shrift, in St. Louis, Missouri, in 1920. Her family moved to New York when she was nine. She had a career as a model and began acting on Broadway at age 21. She received her first major acclaim when she appeared in the musical Oklahoma in 1943. That performance won her an offer at Columbia, which she accepted, Uh, so she went out to Hollywood. Columbia then proceeded to put her in a bunch of bit parts, and loaned her out to other studios who also put her in bit parts. She finally achieved widespread recognition when she moved to Universal in 1947, appearing in films like The Great Gatsby in 1949 and Winchester 73 in 1950. Universal was trying to market her as a blonde bombshell and sex symbol, but Winters rejected this and wanted to be taken seriously as an actress. 
She insisted on playing her role as a factory girl in A Place in the Sun in 1951 with minimal makeup and glamour. Uh, And she ended up being nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for the role. By 1955, she had appeared in a wide variety of acclaimed roles in many serious dramas. Winters would later say that her role in The Night of the Hunter was probably the most thoughtful and reserved performance I ever gave. So we have some pretty big names, um, highly critically regarded names. It oh, sounds like this is like leading up to be a really, really top movie. Yeah, and the names don't stop here. Okay. So the other major role that was still left to be cast was the role of Rachel Cooper, who is the old woman who the kids find shelter with when they are on the run from Powell. Uh, Initially, Lawton wanted to cast his wife, Elsa Lanchester. Uh, She turned down the role because she didn't want to be in the position of being directed by her husband his first time out directing a movie. That is very fair. Mm -hmm. It's good to know your boundaries. She suggested that he get silent movie star Lillian Gish. So Lawton went to New York to get some silent movies out of archives that she had been in and and watch them. Most of her movies had been made with D.W. Griffith, so they were in sort of the same style of movie that he was seeing already as inspiration for the film. And seeing her up on the screen, he felt that the way that Griffith often framed her and lit her in his films had this kind of like halo around her that he wanted that character to have. Now, Lillian Gish was at one time one of the most popular actresses in the United States. She was born in 1893 in Springfield, Ohio. Her father was an alcoholic and left the family, uh, so her mother took up acting to support the family. <laughs> sure, that's, that's one option, I guess. They moved to East St. Louis in Illinois, where they lived for several years with her aunt and uncle. Her mother opened the Majestic Candy Kitchen, and Lillian and her sister Dorothy helped sell popcorn and candy to the patrons of the Old Majestic Theater located next door. The girls also acted in school plays, so, you know, the whole acting bug was caught by all the ladies in the family. In 1910... Uh, they were notified that their father, James, was gravely ill in Oklahoma. So the then 17-year-old Lillian traveled to Shawnee, Oklahoma, where her uncle and aunt on her father's side lived. Um, Her father, by that point, was institutionalized in the Oklahoma Hospital for the Insane, but he was able to travel the 35 miles to Shawnee to meet up with his daughter, and the two got reacquainted. So she ended up staying with her aunt and uncle there, and attending high school there in order to stay close to her father, um, who died two years later. When the theater next to the candy store back in Illinois burned down, Lillian and her sister and mother moved to New York, where the girls became good friends with a next-door neighbor, Gladys Smith. Gladys was a child actress who did some work for director D.W. Griffith, under the stage name Mary Pickford. Oh, When Lillian and Dorothy were old enough, they joined the theater, uh, often in completely different productions. They also took modeling jobs. In 1912, 
Pickford introduced the sisters to Griffith and helped them get contracts with Biograph Studios, where Griffith was working at the time. Gish was 19 years old, uh, but she told casting directors she was 16. Gish made her film debut opposite Dorothy in Griffith's film An Unseen Enemy in 1913. Gish starred in many of D.W. Griffith's biggest movies. Um, Intolerance, Broken Blossoms, Birth of a Nation. Uh, She was one of his main people, one of his main actresses. Um, So she was a big, major star of the early silent era. She stopped working with Griffith when he left to co-found United Artists with Pickford and the rest because she had been given an offer from the newly formed MGM to come with them and she would gain greater creative control over what kinds of movies she would get to make. She was offered a million dollars for her salary in 1926, which she turned down. Uh, She wanted a more modest wage so the studio could use that money to increase the quality of her films, hiring better actors and screenwriters. Good for her. That's nice. Her movies started to lose appeal with the rise of sound film. Not that Gish wasn't able to perform. She had extensive stage experience. But there was definitely a big, like, out with the old, in with the new mentality around that time. Her favorite film of this period was The Wind in 1928, which is a heck of a movie. Um, It's about, like, a woman on a farmstead uh, in, like, rural America who is left alone during, like, a Dust Bowl windstorm um, and, like, goes mad. Okay. Um, It is generally considered to be one of her best performances, one of the best films of the silent era, but it was not a success because it came out in 1928 and it was silent and sound was the new big novel thing. Another thing that changed with the rise of talkies in the early 30s, like that pre-code era, was a difference in what the public wanted out of their leading ladies. So Gish and Pickford's whole careers had kind of been based around being, like, wholesome and innocent. And in the early 30s, before the code, what audiences really wanted was, like... the Spunky. Yeah, and, like, sexy and cynical and jokey and vampy, you know, your Mae West types. Um, And so Gish was sort of seen as being, like, a bit of an antique. Louis B. Mayer wanted to stage a fake scandal for her to, quote, knock her off her pedestal, unquote, in order to create public sympathy for her so that she would become (laughs) popular again. Uh, But Gish said that she didn't want to have to act both on the screen and off, so she quit and returned to the theater, um, which is where she spent most of the 1930s and 40s. She returned to movies in the late 40s for the film Duel in the Sun in 1946, for which she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Um, Her character in that movie gets really ill and then dies late in the film, so it it really, you know, played to some of her silent film strong suits. And so she was appearing in films here and there uh, in this period, but for the most part she was semi-retired, very much out of the public eye, and Lawton was kind of like, 
plucking her out of that to put her into Night of the Hunter. And she seems like she's very selective about what film roles she does do. Mm -hmm. So she must have been very intrigued by this. Yes. Um, After this, she made a lot of, like, television appearances here and there when she wanted to. She continued acting on stage. Um, She also became, like, an advocate for the preservation of silent films, uh, giving speeches and touring to screenings of her work. Her last film appearance was in 1987 in a film called The Whales of August with Betty Davis and Vincent Price. At the Cannes Festival, she got a 10-minute standing ovation from the audience. And um, some people in the entertainment industry were angry when she didn't get an Oscar nomination for that role. Uh, She said, well, now at least I don't have to go and lose to share. (laughs) Because that's the year she did Moonstruck, right? Yes, you've got it. Yeah. She passed away in 1993 at age 99. Wow. Long, full life. So being D.W. Griffith's, like, go-to actress for most of his biggest films, it's worth mentioning that Griffith was racist. Yeah. And the question of whether Lillian Gish was racist, like, here's what I'll say. Griffith definitely was a racist. You'll get people to this day defending him or saying he wasn't a racist. That's largely because Gish ran interference for him for years, like, insisting that he wasn't racist, that he was good and fine. And another thing was... Gish outlived Griffith by quite a long time. So she kind of had sole control over the narrative after Griffith died. And she felt, you know, so much loyalty uh, to him, like she owed him for her career. Um, So when she was doing like lectures and stuff about her silent film days, she would go on about how great Griffith was. And a lot of the like myths that we have about Griffith and how he invented all these filmmaking techniques, you know, really come from Gish being the one controlling the narrative for so long. As for Gish herself, I would think that she probably was also racist, just better at kind of hiding it. Um, We don't really have, like, anything explicit we can point to other than the fact that, you know, she was part of a lot of America First movements in the 1930s and 40s. She was part of a group that was, like, super against America going to war in the 1940s, like, very isolationist. And um, a lot of the people she palled around with in those America First groups were white supremacists. So it's just sort of like, you know... Birds she, of a feather. She was friends with a lot of white supremacists and racists. Uh, so... Just something to, like, let listeners be aware of, that, like, Lillian Gish, great actress, not maybe great politics. So, what's funny is that Lawton was watching her old movies um, as part of his big silent movie rewatch because his wife had suggested her. He didn't actually get to approach her to ask her to be in the movie. What happened was... Gish got word that he was taking all these movies out of her archives and was like, what the hell is he doing? 
So she went and found him and was like, why are you watching all my old movies? And he was like, oh, because I want to cast you in this one. <laughs> um, and she was like, okay, well, but why, like, why this movie? Why me? What's the deal? And Lawton said, and this was kind of his mission statement for the movie, um, aside from his desire to bring the power of silent films back to talkies, he said, when I first went to the movies, they sat in their seats straight and leaned forward. Now they slump down with their heads back and eat candy and popcorn. I want them to sit up straight again. And she was like, we used to sell that popcorn and candy. Get out of my archives. <laughs> uh, Night of the Hunter was budgeted 36 days to shoot. Um, and it shot from August 15th to October 7th, 1954. Robert Mitchum wanted Lawton to shoot the film in authentic Appalachian locations. Um, but the production couldn't afford to do on-location shooting, and Lawton didn't want to anyways, because he had this very specific look he was going for that he wanted to be able to, like, totally create. So for the most part, um, the film was shot on sound stages at Republic Studios. Um, there was some outdoor shooting done at a ranch in the San Fernando Valley, owned by retired director Roland V. Lee, who made Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, we've talked about him, yeah. Uh, they did get some, like, B-roll in West Virginia to, like, edit in with everything else. Lawton's idea of how the film should look, aside from this influence from silent films uh, and German expressionism, was that the film is being shown from the point of view of the children and that children only notice like certain details of their surroundings that they are focused on. Um, so that in this way, some parts of the film feel very abstract and minimal um, because we're just sort of seeing things from the children's point of view. That's a really neat approach. The actors playing the two kids uh, were Billy Chapin and Sally Bruce, and uh, both of them had experience as child actors. You know, the usual kind of like, been in a bunch of commercials and like some TV stuff and whatever. Billy Chapin would continue to act after this uh, on TV and stuff, and then kind of his career would fade away once he stopped being a cute kid. Uh, he passed away in 2016, uh, and he and Lawton got along really well. Uh, making the movie. Lawton told uh, Davis Grubb that Billy was a very flexible child who you could like really mold and uh, that's what he wanted uh, and that he had like a, an instinctual ability to understand the impact and importance of a scene. Meanwhile, Lawton did not get along well with Sally Bruce, the little girl. He told Davis Grubb that he found her to be a repulsive, insensitive, pie-faced teacher's pet. Uh, but this is why she was perfect for the role of Pearl. <laughs> uh, after making Night of the Hunter, she didn't work as an actress again. 
uh, and she eventually grew up to be a grade school teacher, uh, and she is still alive today. She's 71 years old. Okay. Lawton had a very unusual directing style on set. For one thing, he brought the movie's editor and composer on set with him, so they would understand what he wanted out of the scenes as he was making them. The film's editor uh, is Robert Golden, who was born in 1912 and had been working in Hollywood uh, since 1939. Most of his previous credits were for westerns, which, like, a lot of people in Hollywood, that's the story, right, uh, in this period. Some films that he worked on that we would recognize include Invisible Ghost and The Corpse Vanishes, okay. starring Bela Lugosi from 1941 and 1942. After editing Night of the Hunter, um, he would eventually transition into a career as a producer, uh, specifically as the producer of the Lassie television series from 1958 to 1972. That's a good thing to be producer on. Yes. Very steady, easy work. Yeah, no kidding. I don't know how easy, because they always say that, like, dogs are difficult to work with, but you got to figure that the dog playing Lassie has to be, like, the top of the top. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The film's composer was Walter Schumann who was born in New York City in 1913, and he originally went into law school at USC, <laughs> but abruptly quit his studies to perform in a college dance band, uh, which eventually broke up, but then he continued with the music industry um, and like went to go work <laughs> on like radio shows and stuff. Wow. He enlisted in World War II and became the musical director of the Armed Forces Radio Service. <laughs> and after the war, he returned to L.A. and worked in the movie and television industry as a composer and arranger, mostly on Abbott and Costello films. In 1949, he was asked to compose a new theme for a police detective show that was about to make its debut on NBC Radio. And he inadvertently, apparently... Uh, ripped off the music from the 1946 film The Killers by Miklos Rosa and created the theme for Dragnet. Uh, and, you know, Dragnet became a huge hit on the radio and on the TV, and that theme is now, you know, ubiquitous. In the 1950s, he formed a group called The Voices of Walter Schumann that was like a 20-strong choir that then recorded easy listening albums in the <laughs> 50s. Aside from the Dragnet theme, his work on this movie is the other thing he's most well-known for. Cool. Uh, and he actually passed away in 1958. He was having health trouble, so he went to the Mayo Clinic and underwent one of the first open-heart surgeries ever performed in the United States, and complications occurred, and he passed away at age 44. Wow. So, rather than shooting the film with traditional takes, Lawton asked that his crew only slate at the beginning of each reel of film, and then just let the camera roll continuously until the reel ran out, so that he could direct the actors without waiting to have to reset the camera and sound equipment, um, 
similar to the way that silent films used to be directed. Uh, now, this worked in silent films because you could actually give your directions over, like, the performances. Um, here you would still have to, like, wait and give them kind of in-between line readings. I get where he's coming from and wanting to do this. I've worked with actors who will say, like, no, just keep the camera rolling because they want to just keep going and stay in that moment, even if they're doing another take. Um, and, you know, you sometimes just want to say, like, give me more of this and just let it keep going rather than go through that hassle of starting and stopping. On the other hand, film is phenomenally expensive and the biggest way to make your movie go over budget if you're shooting on film, and I mean, that was the only option back then, uh, is to waste film, which is what undoubtedly this would do. It does feel like a very um, theater-inspired mm -hmm. approach to film directing. Yes. And one of the things that Lawton found frustrating about film versus theater is that in theater you can kind of keep tweaking things forever. You know, if something doesn't work, you change it the next time you do the play. Yeah. And in film, once you've done it, it's done forever. Tell that to George Lucas. <laughs> Lawton's directing style was very supportive and respectful of the actor's input, and most of the actors said it was among their favorite professional experiences, which makes sense. And he let the actors kind of do what they felt was right for their characters. Uh, Shelley Winters said that she wanted to play Wilma as being like a fly who's fascinated by the spider. And he was like, yeah, go for it. And Mitchum wanted to perform in a very like Brechtian style. And Lawton was like, yeah, go for it. Um, See, he can do this with his actors because they have the credentials to back up what they're doing. Mm -hmm. If Ed Wood did this, right. it would be a disaster. Uh, according to Lillian Gish, um, Lawton, however, was very unsure of himself. It was his first time directing a movie, and he second-guessed everything. And if someone on set who had, like, more movie experience with him gave him a suggestion, Lawton would start spiraling and talking about how his whole vision for the movie was wrong, and he was afraid that he didn't know what he was doing, and all these other kinds of things. Um, now, I already talked a bit about how, you know, he had this very specific inspiration for how the movie should look, this very German expressionist style. And so to achieve that, uh, he had to find a good director of photography because Lawton didn't know really anything about camera lenses, camera heights, shot types, any of that. So, uh, he hired Stanley Cortez. We've talked about Stanley Cortez briefly before. Uh, because he shot the 1941 version of The Black Cat way back when. Okay. Uh, but Stanley Cortez was born in 1908 in New York City. Uh, and his original surname was Krantz. Stanley Krantz. Okay, I was like, <laughs> his name was just Krantz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he changed his name to Stanley Cortez because his older brother, Jacob Krantz, uh, became an actor, a matinee idol, under the name Ricardo Cortez. So then Stanley changed his name to Match, I guess. Um, and originally, uh, Cortez was a set designer. Uh, but he worked his way up the Hollywood ladder, camera assistant, camera operator, cinematographer, working under guys like Carl Struss. Um, oh, that's a good experience to have for this. Yes, 
Uh, and then he shot The Black Cat in 1941. And as we mentioned in that episode, uh, his work on that movie impressed Orson Welles enough to become the cinematographer for The Magnificent Ambersons in 1942. And a big part of doing that movie was planning out all the shots to work with the set of the house. Cortez was allowed to be in the set and explore it and explore that space with his experience as a set designer before shooting began. After shooting The Magnificent Ambersons, Cortez served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in World War II, and after the war, he specialized mostly in psychological thrillers, although the movie he made most recently before this one was Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kidd, (laughs) which starred Charles Lawton as Captain Kidd. Okay, so this is really how they got connected. Exactly. Cortez would visit Lawton's house in order to explain to him, like, various concepts of how cameras work, kind of give him, like, a crash course in cinematography. Yeah. Uh, And Lawton told him that he had been watching all these silent movies that were shot on nitrate film, which was abandoned by the 50s because of how super flammable it is. Um, But he was impressed with how sharp they were, and he wanted to recreate that sharpness for Night of the Hunter. So Cortez um, had been experimenting on a previous film called Black Tuesday with a new type of black and white film that Kodak had just developed called Tri-X. And Tri-X was this huge breakthrough in black and white film in the 1950s because it was a very fast film, which meant you could get good exposure with very little light, and that made it very important to documentary, low-budget, and news filmmaking because you could just get out there and shoot uh, without needing to lug around a whole ton of light. It also meant then that you could get really high contrast look as well very easily. Yeah. So Cortez brought basically his entire camera crew from Black Tuesday onto this film because they had worked so well together and he decided to shoot the film on Tri-X because it would help Lawton's vision. Cortez would later say that he only ever worked with two directors in his career who understood light. Orson Welles and Charles Lawton. Cool. The studio, United Artists, really wanted the movie to be shot in color because they felt that would sell more tickets. Uh, But Gregory, Grubb, Lawton, Cortez, all of them fought for black and white. Gregory said, I could not see this story being in color. Sure. Once shooting had completed and things were moving into post-production, problems started to arise. The first time that a complete edit of the film was shown to United Artists executives, um, they turned to editor Robert Golden and told him, it's too arty. (laughs) Uh... Lawton went for this, like, you know, very stylized, dreamlike, silent movie, fake, you know, like like unambiguously fake-looking film that, you know, was going for these, like, southern gothic expressionist things. And by the mid-50s, that was just, like, not the style of American movies at all. American movies were very naturalistic. 
It's also hilarious to me that Lawton's first time behind a camera ends up being the same as every other person's first time <laughs> behind a camera, which is art film. Mm-hmm. The studio had basically no idea how to market the movie, which you can tell from the main poster, which makes it seem like it might be some kind of like romantic drama. It's like Shelley Winters on her knees holding Robert Mitchum's arm and he's looking down at her and she's looking up at him and the tagline reads, this morning we were married and now you think I'm going to kiss you, hold you, call you my wife. Okay. And that's it. That's the the poster. <laughs> the trailer really wasn't much help either. They didn't know how to market it because they weren't sure what genre it was. They they didn't really know. So despite uh, being approved by the PCA, uh, the movie was still banned in some places, uh, such as Tennessee, uh, where the head of the Tennessee Censor Board called it the rawest movie I'd ever seen. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> the film received an X certificate in Great Britain, meaning that only adults could come to see it. Um, the BBFC had retired the H certificate uh, early in the 30s, and by now it had been replaced with the X certificate. The film premiered on July 26th, 1955 in Des Moines, Iowa at a special event that was designed to raise money for the YMCA. Okay. It later had its premiere in Los Angeles on August 26th and in New York on September 29th. Gregory wanted to have the movie get shown roadshow style, stopping at cities that he had already toured with Lawton's plays in. He knew that there would be an audience there. But he couldn't convince the studio to do that. Um, so instead, he just had to go with how United Artists wanted to release the film. And according to him, they didn't have the, quote, muscle, desire, or intelligence to handle the picture. The film was also uh, banned uh, by the Roman Catholic Diocese of Cheyenne in Denver, um, and Gregory wanted to sue the diocese, but United Artists wouldn't let him. <laughs> and the movie was not a success with either critics or audiences at the time of its release. Um, it was a big flop. Uh, people really had no idea what to make of it. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times said it was a weird and intriguing endeavor. Variety said that while Lawton as a director is rich in promise, uh, the completed project, bewitching at times, loses sustained drive via too many offbeat touches. Uh, and Life magazine said, if sometimes it strains too hard at being simple and winds up being pretentious, it is still one of the year's most interesting and provocative films. The Legion of Decency gave the movie a B, <laughs> Because it degraded marriage. Oh my god. So, is that why this is Lawton's only film directing? Yes. He took the commercial and critical failure of the movie very personally, uh, and he never attempted to make another film. 
which ended up being a huge problem for Paul Gregory because they had a second film lined up, which was to be an adaptation of The Naked and the Dead, and Lawton had prepared a screenplay, and they were kind of all ready to go, but when Night of the Hunter was not a financial success, it became very difficult for Gregory to raise funds for the second project, and Lawton kind of lost interest in doing it because everyone was criticizing Night of the Hunter, and so the whole thing kind of fell apart, and instead, The Naked and the Dead was directed by Raoul Walsh and released by Warner Brothers in 58, although Gregory did still produce that movie. Um, and Lawton continued to direct theater where he felt much more comfortable. Okay. Now, even though Night of the Hunter was not well-received at the time, uh, over the years since, it has come to be regarded much higher. This began in sort of a cult film way, with the film showing at, like, revival houses and museums and, like, art galleries and things. Um as well as, like, growing popularity with generations that saw it on TV growing up. and This does seem like a weird movie to play on TV, to be honest. Yeah, but probably because it was a failure, it might have been really cheap for TV stations to pick up. In the 1970s, a lot of articles started being written about it by, like, a generation of film critics who had been kids in the 50s. Roger Ebert called it one of the most frightening movies of all time, with one of the most unforgettable villains of all time. And, uh, yeah, it was Cahir de Cinema who ranked it number two on the list of best movies of all time behind Citizen Kane. Uh, and it was added to the Library of Congress in 1992. And it now holds 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, did Lawton live long enough to see this kind of revival of interest in it? So, unfortunately, he did not. He continued, as I said, to act on film. Uh, his probably best-known later movies would be in Spartacus in 1960 and the film Advise and Consent in 1962. Uh, but he passed away in 1962 from renal cancer. Ooh, um, and so he, he never got to see this movie get a different critical appraisal. That's too bad. Yeah. He was only 63 years old. Yeah. Well, how are we watching Night of the Hunter? The Night of the Hunter. So Night of the Hunter was released on DVD by MGM in 2000. It's not the best looking release, but it's not terrible. MGM in 2000, around those years, was a pretty bare-bones kind of affair for DVDs. That transfer is what you'll find to rent on YouTube, Google Play, and iTunes uh, for about five bucks. Um, in 2010, uh, it was re-released on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection after an extensive photochemical restoration of the film conducted by the University of California Film Archive. It has been on the Criterion channel to stream. It's currently, as of this recording, not. So watch the channel to see if it comes back up if you're a subscriber. Um, otherwise, you can just watch it on YouTube, as I said, for five bucks. Um, and if you really want the best experience, like hunt down the Criterion Blu-ray for sure. Cool. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. 
You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Night of the Hunter from 1955, directed by Charles Lawton. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Screen Scene. We just finished watching The Night of the Hunter from 1955, directed by Charles Lawton. Ben, what did you think of this? What's your first impression? Well, I I liked this quite a bit. I will say that after hearing all the hype about it, I don't like it that much. Okay. Like... Ignoring the question of whether Citizen Kane is the greatest movie of all time or not, if we take that as read, I still don't think this is number two. Sure. Like, this wasn't as good as the critical acclaim made it out to be, in my opinion. Um, But I still really enjoyed it. Yeah, I would agree. It's... I think it's a pretty good movie. I think it's a very good film. Um... But you can see Lawton's greenness at directing. Yeah. um, Just with some of the odd directing and editing choices. Mm. But I do think it's very evocative and a good watch. Well, let's talk about the story and uh, how it unfolds. And then we can sort of pry open the movie a bit more. Cool. So... This movie opens with, like, a picture of a night sky with uh, an image of a woman, who we find out later is Rachel Cooper, reading a Bible story to five children. And we see, like, their heads floating in the the stars. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, like, something I was not expecting. Yeah, the movie starts in a weird place. Yeah. As the movie continues, uh, we are set in West Virginia during the Great Depression. And we see Harry Powell, who is a self-appointed reverend minister guy. Preacher. Preacher. Who is very misogynist. He hates the pretty little things that women wear because, like, they're so vain and they have painted faces and, and all this. And he considers it doing God's work to kill these women. Mm-hmm. Um, typically rich widows. And use their money to continue doing God's work. I.e., move on to the next victim. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite something. He has love and hate, uh, tattooed on his knuckles. Hate on his, hate on his left hand and love on his right. The left hand was historically considered to be the devil's hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just putting it out there. hmm Um, so it's clear that Powell has just murdered someone... And is, like, leaving. Um, And he gets arrested for a stolen car. Mm -hmm. Not anything to do with murder, so he's only given 30 days in jail. Then we cut to a man named Ben Harper, who has just robbed a bank and has driven home. Um, He has two children, Pearl and John. John, I would put it around, like, eight at the Mm, oldest, and Pearl is, like, four or five. Yeah, that seems about right. He hears the cops are coming, so he 
hides the money in Pearl's doll that had just been, like, cut open. And he makes John and Pearl promise not to tell anyone, not even his wife, their mom, Willa. He's arrested, um, and it's clear that John's a little traumatized by this, by the way that the cops kind of throw Ben down and cuff him. Ben killed two men during the robbery, so he is sentenced to be hanged. While awaiting this end, uh, he shares a cell with Powell. And it's very odd to me that the jail would put a man on death row and a man serving 30 days in the same cell. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's the 30s. I don't know. I don't know how prisons work, but... Powell knows what Ben is in here for, and so he's trying to get the location of the money out from him. But Ben ends up taking that secret to his grave. So Powell's like, ah, well, he's left behind a new widow with some money lying around. Time to... Go do God's work. Powell charms this small town, left, right, and center. And we kind of see this mainly through um, this one woman who's kind of taken as, like, the every person of this town. Um, Her name is Icy Spoons. Um, She runs a shop with her husband that Willa works at. It's like an ice cream parlor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like their last name is, like, Spoonsworth or something, but they just call it Spoons because, like, they serve ice cream with spoons and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is funny that her name is Icy Spoons and she runs an ice cream parlor, but yeah. Yeah. And while Powell is, like, very charming, John is very skeptical. Especially because Icy keeps trying to push Willa and Powell to be a couple. Yeah. And it works. They get married. It's not a good relationship. Because Powell is not a good person. Yeah. He also begins to be the preacher of the town. And, of course, this mix of religion and misogyny is uh, proliferated through the town. um, Especially in Willa, who sees um, her feminine virtues as sins. um, The money that her husband stole as a sin on her family. um, And a blight on her community, and on her own soul, and truly believes that Powell has come here, was sent by God to her to help um, salvage her soul. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when Powell shows up, like, Icy wants Powell and Willa to get together because, like, oh, she's got two kids, and, like, you can't be a single mom. Like, you gotta have a man to help you raise those kids. And it's clear, however, that Willa gets together with him because, like, she finds him really attractive. And when they, you know, have their wedding night, like, she's looking to get down. And it's clear that, like, she's maybe been, like, missing that since her husband went to jail and subsequently was killed. Um, But Powell's not having any of it. Like... He doesn't want to touch her. Sex is sinful. Women are sinful. Like, women are are just the worst. But it's also in the way of, like, your body is a temple that should only be used for procreation. Yes. Therefore, it's wrong to do things for lustful reasons. So it's in a very roundabout way of, like, your body is gross because I worship it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very, like, it's, I think something that would be very familiar to anyone 
who grew up in like a particular strain of Christianity. Um, but yeah, so what's important is that like he gets Willa to like internalize all of this. And so she ends up like kind of going for it, this idea. Yeah. Now Powell has deduced that John and Pearl know where the money is and he tries to get it out of them. Willa is completely blind to this. Uh, she thinks John is lying when Powell is, like, when he tells her that Powell is being mean and asking about the money and things like this. Um, Pearl is, like, the golden child little girl um, mm-hmm. who doesn't tell because John said not to. Whereas John's like, no, we made a promise to Dad. Like, Willa's not worried about the money because Powell's told her that Ben told him that the money was at, like, the bottom of the river. Yeah. So she thinks it's just, like, gone. Yeah. One night, Willa overhears Powell um, basically threatening to beat Pearl to get the secret, and um, she interprets it as, like, uh, he knows that the the money's still around um, because it's still a blight on our soul. Like, so we need to find the money to reach salvation. That's how she interprets it. Uh, Powell, on the other hand, decides, like, cake, time to kill. So he murders her and dumps her body in their car in the bottom of the river. Yeah, yeah, like, he he drives off in, like, their, like, Model T and drives it into the river. And I think, like, this accomplishes a dual goal of, like... He claims that she ran off mm-hmm. to go be with some other guys or something because she was just too sinful. Yeah. This, this is what she tells Icy and other people in the town. So with the car being gone and she's gone, it's like, cool, that alibi, that story is justified. Um, there's someone else in this story who I haven't really talked about. Um, he goes by Uncle Birdie um, because he's friends with John. He lives, like, on the edge of the river... And it's clear that, like, he's kind of an outcast of this town. He's a drunk. Um, but he's made friends with John, and he's fixing up his dad's boat, this little skiff. One night he's out fishing, and he sees the car and Willa at the bottom of the river. And he is panicking, and so he drinks himself to sleep that night because he's like, if I tell, people will think it was me. But he knows, like, that's John's mom. Fuck. Yeah. He had also told John that, like, hey, I know what it's like having a preacher in the house. If you run into any problems, you come here. Mm-hmm. Now that Will is out of the picture, Powell is just straight up threatening John and Pearl. He is basically about to kill John, and Pearl gives up this secret. Um, the money's in my doll. With some quick thinking, John basically finds a way to knock... Powell down, and they make a run for the docks to go to Uncle Bertie, who is, like, drunk asleep on the floor, and that's when John makes the executive decision of, like, get in the boat, we're going downriver. This section where, like, they have to get away from Powell in the house does have a few moments that feel a little Home Alone-ish. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, like, a really good way. Mm. Not in a, like, cheesy way. I don't know. Mm. So Powell's chasing after them. They get away from him just in time in the boat. He 
leaves a note to Icy that, like, oh yeah, I took the kids to my sister's to get away from all of this. And that's his alibi for why he has now left the town to go hunt down these kids. Every time that these kids land on the side of the river to find some rest, find some food, Powell is not far behind. Um, There's this really good moment where it's at night and they see that there's like a sheep farm nearby. So they land and they go to sleep in the barn. And a few hours later, John hears the telltale song that Powell likes to sing. And he's like, fuck, does this man never sleep? And he gets Pearl and him back into the boat and sailing away. The shot where he's looking out the barn like window and he sees the silhouette of Powell on the horse riding across the road and you know Powell and the horse are backlit uh even though it's night and you can see him there on the horizon um that shot was done with forced perspective in the studio uh they didn't you know have a sound stage where that he was, was like, like that far away. That far away, yeah, where he was going to be like 100 yards away, right? Um, so it was done with forced perspective with a uh, like dwarf actor on like a pony, basically. Huh. Yeah. I never would have guessed. Yeah. So back in the boat, they continue down the Ohio River, and they are eventually found, uh, Pearl and John, that is, are eventually found by Rachel Cooper, this elderly woman who is looking after some other stray children that have found their way to her house. Um, There's five kids in total, but the one that I'll mention uh, is Ruby, who is the oldest, and she's a teen who basically will go out looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm. It's not so much like she's prostituting herself, she's really just like wanting affection, and the town boys take advantage of that. Yeah, it's it's that, like, Rachel's very devout and religious, like a lot of characters in this movie. And so, you know, Ruby can't just be, like, going on dates to go, like, necking with boys. So she, like, makes up these stories about what she's doing, but she goes out and goes into town, you know, to go on dates with boys because she's a teen girl. Like, yeah. that's what it comes down to. On one of these outings, Ruby runs into Powell, who has tracked John and Pearl here. Uh, he asks her, um, you have two new people at your, your house, right? Like two new kids. Uh, what are their names? Ah, John and Pearl. Perfect. And as soon as Ruby, like, confirms this, Powell, like, gets up to leave this, like, yeah. candy store. And she, like, chases after him and, like, grabs his sleeve, and you hear the click of his switchblade knife come out, um, so she's about to get murked, but, uh, is stopped because they're in the middle of town, and mm-hmm. a boy is like, oh, Ruby, don't go chasing after preachers. Yeah. Ruby goes home, and she tells Cooper about this man, and that's also when the cat's had the bag about what Ruby is doing, mm. and Cooper isn't mad, like, she's like, like, I get why you're doing this, Ruby, but you really shouldn't be looking for love in these places. Like, I understand that you want love, but this is more infatuation than anything else. Mm-hmm. 
She's like a little disappointed, but like Booby isn't punished. Yeah. The next day, Powell comes to the house with crocodile tears to be like, yeah, my children, they're my own flesh and blood. I've been looking for them everywhere. And Cooper's like, uh-huh. Okay. When John and Pearl come out, Pearl like runs to Powell's leg. And John's like, that's not my dad. And it's very standoffish. So Cooper clues in that, like, huh, things aren't what this guy says. She pulls out a shotgun and says, get off my lawn. Um, so runs him off her property. Powell knows the jig is up and he's like, a curse on you. Fuck you. And he comes back that night and is singing his telltale song. Kind of terrorizing the family a little bit. During this scene, there's like a neat point where Powell is singing and then Cooper joins in with the like female part. Turns out the song that Powell has been singing is a Bible song. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning on Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Safe and secure from all alarms. song like super well because i didn't grow up in the bible belt it's a very typical thing for like original songs in church sure yeah i just found it significant that hers has jesus and his doesn't yeah exactly like he's been singing this same song all the way through and it's not till we hear her singing it in duet with him that instead of hearing leaning we hear leaning on jesus that his, yeah, that his version didn't have Jesus in it yeah. struck me as significant. Powell manages to slip into the back of the house, and Cooper ends up shooting him. He runs off, like, yelping like an injured cat, and is hiding in the barn, so Cooper calls up the state police to come get him. They arrive in the morning and arrest him, and John is clearly reliving the trauma of his dad being arrested, um, because he's saying, like, no, stop, and he grabs the doll, runs out, and starts, like, pouring out the money to say, like, here's the money, please just stop. And it's very heartbreaking. So Powell's going to trial. It's, um, in December, and this trial has brought the whole original town to this town. I don't know if we ever get town names, but we see Icy and her husband in the gallery. And John is, like, not speaking at all, um... He's clearly, like, really upset and not trusting of the police or the legal system at all. I think also, like, there's some sort of weird psychological thing going on here where, like, Pearl always liked Powell because she's, like, super young and doesn't get it. And John, like, was never trusted him, was the first person not to trust him. But now that he's been like, arrested, it feels like, you know, and, and with him reliving his dad's arrest, it feels like there's this weird thing that's happened where, like, John's imprinted his, like, affection for his father onto Powell now in some, like, weird kind of way, like, as a as a surrogate, even though he knows Powell's a bad guy. So he's, like, 
refusing to identify Powell at the trial, and, like, it kind of feels almost like he doesn't want to sell Powell out in a way. Yeah. Despite, like, knowing that he's a bad guy. Yeah. Now, Icy is, like, we had seen her getting, like, very vocal and very into the, the church and everything back when things were kind of going a little smoothly at the original town. And now she's just as, like, loud and passionate, but about lynching mm-hmm. Powell. She's like, fuck this guy, let's go lynch him. It feels like, you know, she feels super betrayed because she was the one who was, like, the most in favor of him staying in the town in the first place. Yeah. And it's like, oh, maybe people won't blame me for him coming here and killing people if I am the loudest voice for, hey, let's lynch this guy. Absolutely. Powell is taken out of the back of the jailhouse, and, you know, there's a line that, like, we'll save him for a lawful hanging kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And the movie ends with Christmas morning and Rachel Cooper giving gifts to the kids. Um, Ruby gets a nice brooch. John got a cool, like, pocket watch that we saw him looking at earlier. And Cooper kind of ends the movie with, like, her narrating this, like, internal monologue of, um, children will always endure. Lord, save the little children. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the movie. So there's a lot to kind of talk about here, and there's a lot to, like, unpack, and there's a lot we can go into. What do you want to talk about first? Let's start with the actors. I think everyone in this movie is very good, but I was very impressed with Billy Chapman as John Harper. Okay. I think he did a pretty good job. I think part of that is the way that Lawton shot him. Okay. And, like, directed him in some scenes. But Robert Mitchum was really powerful. Shelley Winters was, as Willa, was very tragic and sad. Lillian Gish as Rachel Cooper was, like, badass. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Robert Mitchum's performance as Harry Powell gets the most attention in this movie. And to be honest, like, I thought he was good, but I don't think this is his best performance. I don't think this is the best Robert Mitchum movie I've ever seen. I Um, think this is the only time I've seen him in a role that is this terrifying. Ah, see. Well, so, like, I... I think the only other movie I've seen him in is Out from the Past, or Out, Out of, of the, the past. past. And he's, like, it's a completely different role. So I only have these two examples of understanding him. See, I've seen Cape Fear, uh, where he's the villain. Um, oh, I didn't know he was in that. Yeah. Cool. But, yeah, I think he's good. Um, I think Lillian Gish is better. Um, She has many more years of acting experience on him, though. I mean, sure, but, like, you know, she's also, like, she could have been terrible. I mean, she's an, you know, kind of over-the-hill, forgotten silent movie actress, right? So, like, she might have been really wooden or really weird. I think she's really good. I think this is my favorite Lillian Gish performance I've ever seen, but to be fair, I've you know, only ever seen this and then, like, some of her D.W. Griffith work, like Broken Blossoms and things like that. And that's just such a melodramatic, over-the-top style that it's hard to compare. But I really thought that she was the standout in the cast of the, like, adult actors. 
Um, I agree that Shelley Winters was good. There was not enough of her for my tastes, and that's maybe something we can talk about uh, later. You know, this movie has a lot to admire about it, but it is not without flaws. Yeah. As you said, in the context setting, Charles Lawton tried to direct based on, like, or emphasize certain things that would be emphasized in a child's memory Mm. of things. And I, I think he did achieve that. His directing style and choices consistently placed emphasis on how John thought or behaved. Like Yes. Um, like when he's like thinking about like, okay, what can I do here or something like that? Um, it's consistently like showing his perspective of things. Um, and I think that kind of underlined how much Powell's presence is all the more threatening. I think that it's really important to understand when you watch this movie that, yeah, we're seeing it from the kid's point of view and that also that we're kind of in like a bit of an like allegorical universe. We're yeah. in a bit of a like um, fairy tale universe where characters represent like very certain things, and we're like one step removed from realism and reality. Um, I do think the decision to focus on the kids causes some problems in the movie. I think it makes the second half of the movie, which I would define as, like, once they get on the boat and start going down river, from there on, the movie really clicks for me. And everything there kind of worked, and having everything be from the kid's point of view in that section really works. But I think the decision to foreground the kids kind of kneecaps the first half of the movie. And that's because the first half requires a lot of setup of things that need to be from the adult point of view. And, you know, Lawton includes a lot of scenes that the kids aren't in. But it always feels like if we are in a scene that the kids aren't in, that scene is, like, over and done with as quick as possible. And we move through the early parts of the movie story really quickly. And I think that gives some problems, at least for me, structurally. In the film. So, like, one of those is that the romance, as you could call it, between Powell and Willa is way too quick. Yeah. Like, he comes into town, Icy's like, hey, you should be with him. And Willa's like, I don't know about that. Like, I'm worried that, like, he's just after me for the money, maybe. And then Icy's like, well, ask him. And Willa's like, are you after me for the money? And Powell's like, it's at the bottom of the river. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. And then they get married. And when I said we don't have enough Shelley Winters, like, I think we don't have enough scenes where we can understand Willa's point of view. Like, Winters is giving a really good performance that lets us fill in those gaps for ourselves. But, you know, I really would have liked to have seen more of her loneliness, for one thing, before Powell shows up. It's very quick in this movie. Like, Ben Harper gets arrested, and then the next scene is Ben Harper in jail talking to Powell. And then the next scene, Ben Harper's been hanged. And then the next scene, Powell shows up in town. And, like, the next scene, he's married Willa. And so we don't get, like, a great sense of her loneliness without Ben, which is, like, the motivating factor that leads her to marry him. And then once they're together, like, 
again, Winters give such a good performance, you can fill in the blanks, but we don't get, like, a great sense of how he bends her to his way of thinking. It just kind of happens. Yeah. Yeah, like, I would agree with what you're saying. I, um, I understand why Lawton made these choices and, like, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that's just mom. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly she's marrying this guy? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. Like, what about dad? Yeah. Um, so I understand why they made these choices. Um, I I do agree, though. Um, I think, like, how fast the romance goes and, like, how fast the town trusts him mm-hmm. is because he's a preacher. Or, like, like sure. masquerading as one. So it that kind of, like, lampshades it a little bit. But it definitely struck me as, like, you know, we had this long script where you have to cut it down to bare bones, so we're going to have to scrap the, like, her explaining her loneliness, so mm-hmm. we just, like, get to the, like, as you said, Ben's arrested, Ben's in jail, Powell arrives, they get married, kind of thing. Yeah. The problem is, is that the first half of the movie's story really depends on Willa and her psychology, and, you know, understanding her and understanding Powell and a lot more adult stuff. And then once the kids are on the run, it's really easy to just stick with the kids. It's like this weird double-edged sword because for this movie's very noticeable stylistic ticks to make sense, you have to understand it's from the kid's point of view. But we don't understand really that it's from the kid's point of view because it doesn't open with the kid's point of view. It doesn't a lot of the first scenes in the movie don't have the kids in them. And, you know, it's still the kid's point of view because he's minimizing the adults as much as possible. But the first half of the story needs the adults too, like to a degree where he has to have scenes without the kids in it. And so like, you don't really understand without someone telling you that, Hey, this is from the kid's point of view at first. Instead, it just seems like we're moving through a lot of scenes very quickly um, that maybe could have used more time. I think that's what the opening of Rachel Cooper telling the story mm-hmm. is supposed to do. Because mm-hmm. she's like, be aware of wolves in sheep clothing and yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then that's when we um, have like a helicopter zoom in shot onto Powell in mm-hmm. the car. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe that's like the movie itself or Lawton or whoever trying to like say like, this isn't exactly real. It's not going to be a realistic story. We're doing something a bit more evocative here. I think the issue there is that like the opening with like their heads floating in the stars is so weird that that like immediately makes you go like, okay, what? And especially if you're a 1950s American audience who isn't like really used to that kind of thing. Like if you are going to use a device to ease people into stylistic storytelling that is out of the norm your device should start in the norm, you know? Like, you can't... So they should have actually been, like, sitting around, like, a fire telling the story. Yeah. And then maybe have the shot of them in the stars as, like, the continuing of the story or something. Yeah, like, you can't, you know... Okay. And then the fact that they show up later in the story as well is also a little odd if we're using this kind of device. Yeah, I mean, like, James and the Giant Peach, like, you can't start in the stop motion, if your plan is once he goes on the big adventure, we transition from live action to stop motion. You know what I mean? I haven't seen James and the Giant Peach. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> but I will take your word for it. 
so yeah, I think I think it's something that like weakens the first half of the movie because we move through a lot of story very quickly. It does make sense from a kid's point of view in exactly the way you said, where it's like events just sort of happen around you and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I think another thing about making it more of a fable and making it from the kid's point of view that hurts the movie a little bit, you know, for adults watching it, is that, like, John is the first person to kind of be like, oh, hey, Powell's not good. And in fact, he never thinks Powell is good. Like, he immediately latches on to, like, Powell's a bad guy. And I, I think this is supposed to be some kind of, like, you know, kids can sense the truth of people no, kind of thing. No, it's because Powell's not his dad. Sure. But the problem then with that becomes, as good as Mitchum's performance is, he's too obviously evil. Like You don't think his completely black getup that basically is like a the bad cowboy kind of look. Well, that's a preacher look. I'll give him that. That's fine. <laughs> it's just that like his, the idea here is supposed to be that like, he's a charming man of God who, you know, is very attractive and lures people in with his rhetoric and like gets Willa to like be with him because he's so like sexually magnetic and all of these kinds of things. But like his, you know, as a wolf in sheep's clothing, his sheep's clothing is very unconvincing. Like, he immediately just, like, never quite seems right. And it's weird to me that, like, a small town like this, that, like, no one would latch onto that quicker other than the kids. Like, it just makes everyone look like idiots that they didn't see this coming because he's, like, he's, he's, something's clearly wrong with him. Even if he's, like, a man of God... Like, it's the kind of thing where, like, he's out there being, like, you know, it's not literally this, but he's like, oh, yes, I believe all people should be killed, and I should be the one to do the killing. And Icy's like, oh, yeah, 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 like, like you mean in the sense of killing, like, their sins and, and bringing them <laughs> salvation. Yes, of course, preacher, of course. And it's like... <laughs> Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> she well, to be fair, that is literally icy. I know he doesn't actually act like that, yeah. but that is what icy but, acts like. Yeah, and this is what I'm saying though is that like it's it just makes icy seem like weirdly blind that like she's excusing his weirdness and yeah. and I think he's just too a little obviously evil and I get that that's supposed to be because we're seeing him from John's eyes, but it makes it harder for us to understand why all the adults in the town are like, oh yeah, this guy's dope, and like go along with him for so long, especially because like, you know, small towns do kind of have a reputation for not like inviting random strangers in. I guess part of why I was able to buy it mm. is abusers or manipulators are very charming when they have to be. Or when they want to be. So I just kind of took it for granted. Or like just took it at face value. Mm -hmm. That he was like this. I will say. Ruby. Moves a little too fast. I found that to be very confusing. Because she's like overly infatuated. To the point where. Cooper is having to drag her away. From trying to stop the lynching. Because oh but he loves me. Yeah the thing with Ruby. i I buy that she goes for him so quickly when she meets him because it's like, you know, oh, like, I'm I'm hanging out and I want, like, a man and, like, these, you know, teen boys are always kind of after me. But, like, 
you know, when you're a 16-year-old girl, like, what's better than a teen boy? Like, an adult man, and, like, he's going to buy her these things, and he's super charming, and, like, when you're a girl like Ruby, super charming really just means he's paying attention to me. Um, the thing that I don't buy is, yeah, that she's still, like, oh, but he's so dreamy after he's, like, been to the house and tried to kill them and stuff. Yeah. That's, that's a little odd. And I do think that Mitchum makes Powell magnetic and, and, you know, in the sense that you can't, like, stop listening to him or you can't stop looking at him kind of thing. But even when he's being charming... It never feels sincere. Like, it always feels like there's just something missing inside him. You know, like a soul. (laughs) There were some really interesting choices here for directing and, like, the way the shot is composed. Um, For example, when Willa is in the water, Mm. it's very eerie and calm. We see seaweed or river weed, whatever, kind of flowing in the current, and her hair is flowing in the current in the same way. She looks, like, at peace, but it's 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 fucked up. <laughs> but it's very powerful and evocative. Um, the other moments where, like, it was a very interesting directing choice was when the kids are escaping from Powell. They first kind of knock him out a bit in the basement, and then they're scrambling up the stairs, and we get this shot that's very reminiscent of, um, I thought of The Monster by Roland West, but okay. it's that silent film era shot where we see the entire room and like the kids scrambling up towards the light and um, Powell kind of like struggling to like not step on jars to it, get at them. It's it's almost like a like cutaway view where yeah. we're seeing like the whole room as, like, kind of a two-dimensional thing, like you're in a side-scroller video game or something, and the camera's, like, way back in a position where, like, realistically, physically, the camera could not be. Yeah, or, like, the side of a dollhouse. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff like that where Lawton is bringing back a lot of stylistic stuff that had fallen out of favor in the 1950s because it wasn't, like, realistic. You know, bringing back some of the more, like, representational visuals of, like, the silent era. And I will say that no matter what problems I kind of have with structure or storytelling or acting in this film, I think the thing that you're really going to take away from it when you watch it, and probably the reason why it is so highly respected, is the imagery. Yeah. You know, there are some just gorgeous, unforgettable images in this movie, and a lot of them come from... Lawton not being afraid of things looking fake. Like, when they go and they hide out for the night in, like, the farm. Like, they're on a set, and it's, like, really obvious that it's a set. Because it he's going for a certain look, and it's a look he can only get on a set. And because of that, he's decided not to even, like, try to fake it to look real. He's basically saying, like, hey, I know this is a movie, and you know this is a movie... And, like, we all know this is fake, so, like, let's just, you know, have these cool-looking, dreamlike, you know, visuals that are evocative and, like... Visceral. Visceral and, like, tell the story and not worry about, oh, well, that doesn't look real, though, you know? It's very interesting how, you know, as you said, like, the 
a lot of the imagery and sets and everything are clearly uh, artificial in the way that German Expressionism likes, likes things to be artificial. Yeah. But the use of diegetic music real, is really cool, um, especially in the way that it does transitions and underlines like the feelings of the characters. It's not like this is a musical, but I feel like... There's a lot of singing. Yeah. And it's really cool. I, I was not expecting that. You know, what it evokes a lot of, to me, is the South. Yeah. Like, it feels very authentic of the culture that this movie takes place in, you know, that people are singing all the time. That, like, people, you know, have a hymn that they're singing as they work or or whatever, right? This movie does a lot of things that bring in the South and make it feel very authentic. Like, so this is kind of getting at a bit of a wider point for me, but I would not call this movie traditional horror. Okay. Like, you know, if you're told Night of the Hunter is a horror film and then you go and watch it, I think there's a decent chance that, like, at least 50% of the people you show it to will be like, that wasn't a horror movie. I can certainly understand why audiences in the 1950s didn't get it. Like, I can understand why everyone walked out of the theater and was like... The fuck? Yeah, that was fucking weird. That's not what I thought that was going to be. Well, we're here in 2020, and I'm like, that's not what I expected it to be. Sure. I don't think this is really traditional horror, but what it definitely is for sure is Southern Gothic. Absolutely. Um, It is, like, much more a fable than it is, like, horror... And it has those Southern Gothic trademarks yeah. very strongly. And I think the singing is part of that. And just like the mood and atmosphere um, that Lawton's creating. Um, that shot with Willa underwater is like really good example of the movie's dedication to like mood. And, and even though I think Lawton speeds through story beats too quickly... He does slow the movie down in places to evoke mood. Yeah. Um, The fable quality really comes to fore in the second half with Mitchum, evil, gish, good, these two adults versus each other with the kids in the middle. And I think that part of the movie is the strongest part. Like, Mm -hmm. for me, the movie finally clicked into gear and everything started working once they got on the river. Whereas up to that point, like, it was like, oh, well, I wish I got a little more of this or a little more of that. And there were things where it was like, oh, but I wish, I wish we could have stayed with this longer. Um, You know, speaking of those Doll's House framings, there's a lot of really great stuff like that with um, Shelley Winters and Robert Mitchum's, like, bedroom with its, like, peaked, like, chapel. Yeah, steeple. Yeah, uh, sort of design. Definitely the German Expressionism is very strong throughout this movie. Um, But once we get to that second half, it all really works together. Yeah. Um, I think it's definitely more, like, cohesive. The first part still did work for me. I think that if we want to talk about this movie in a horror context, what this movie feels like the successor to is, you know, less the horror movies that we've been seeing in the 1950s and more curse the cat people. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of as well. Um, both in the sense of like, I mean, I, 
I don't know if you should show Night of the Hunter to your children, but a horror for children type Yeah, deal? I think this is horror for children. No, absolutely, because, like, Mitchum is scary, but as an adult viewer, he's not as scary as I was expecting him to be. Like, he was not as scary as this, like, oh, most terrifying movie villain of all time kind of hype was leading me to be. There are points in the movie where he's kind of ridiculous. And I think if you're a child, he is much more terrifying than if you're an adult watching it. But despite that, even though he's ridiculous in places, it is, in my opinion, realistic that like like there's a ring of truth to it. The way that he completely falls apart whenever anyone sees through his bullshit. Yeah. Like, he's so in control and so threatening and so dangerous until there's, like, a moment where anyone, like, calls him on anything. And then he, like, just immediately fucking crumbles and is pathetic. And that, to me, has, like, a real ring of truth to it. I think Robert Mitchum is terrifying here. Um, Definitely not every time. But when the kids are escaping from him... It felt very like, you know, when like the when Jason's coming after you and you just narrowly escape. Sure. But there's nothing that's going to stop him. There's no like rhetoric. There's no. There's nothing that's going to stop him. And mm-hmm. he's stalking these kids through the entire South. Yeah. Like, even to the point where like the guy, the kids, like, does he never sleep? Mm-hmm. And that. I don't know if that qualifies this as being called a proto-slasher. Um, I definitely was very scared as Robert Mitchum got closer to that boat when they were first escaping. Okay. That's totally valid. Yeah. I didn't, because to me that whole section where they first escaped on the river felt more slapstick to me. Like, I was definitely getting those, like, Home Alone vibes, and he was like much more of a cartoonish kind of figure. But from, I can see from like a kid's point of view how he's terrifying. But from yeah. my point of view, it was like almost ridiculous the way that like, you know, they're getting away and he's like... Stuck in the mud. Yeah, like getting stuck in the mud or like falling down the stairs or like whatever, right? Getting hit on the head. To be fair, I do have some baggage full of trauma related to this. Yeah, you have life experience from growing up with, like, um, angry adult men in your life, right? And I don't really have that. But I do want to talk about it as a horror for children for a moment, because talking about genre with this movie, and I can see how this movie is, like, difficult to pin down, right? Like, the marketing department for United Artists couldn't pin it into a genre, and I'm sitting here being like, well, this, you know from the context of the 1950s, like, this isn't really horror, and there's stuff in it that, like, I said, like, I think the closest thing we've seen to it is Curse of the Cat People. Like, Curse of the Cat People has a very similar mood. This is more threatening, because everything that's threatening in Curse of the Cat People turns out to be, like... A misunderstanding of adults. Yeah, whereas here, like, this guy is going to kill you. Um, But the fact that it's, like, I think this is meant to be a movie for children, and the reason I say that is because I know you're thinking like, well, there's some stuff in here. I don't know if I'd like, you know, Willa being dead underwater. Like there's some disturbing stuff, but like when he slits Willa's throat in bed, when he kills her, we don't see it. Like we see him pull out the knife or whatever. And then it like does a wipe 
to the kids. And as much as there's stuff in here that definitely I think would be disturbing for kids, I think it's for kids. Because I think the genre context that this most makes sense in is, you know, if we're thinking the 1950s. Watching this movie made me think of, like, all those live-action Disney movies that are about, like, kids growing up, like, in the South. Like, um, Song of the South, So Dear to My Heart. Um, sure. You know, even going into, like, your uh, Treasure Islands and, and stuff like that. Like, those Bobby Driscoll movies, basically. <laughs> Fucking like, Bobby Driscoll. And so, like, these, you know, and even going into, the, like... The 60s, like, Disney kept producing movies like this Old Yeller, Pollyanna, those kind of movies of, like, kids on, like, a farm in the turn of the century and, like, American nostalgia and it's all happy and stuff, right? This movie is to those 1950s Disney live-action movies as Don Bluth movies are to 80s Disney animated movies, Okay. Like, that was the feel I got from it. Like, the way that this movie's, like, maybe a little too disturbing for kids, but still must be for kids because it doesn't quite work as being for adults. Like, it, to me, feels like, you know, it's in the same genre as those Bobby Driscoll movies. It's just the, like, scarier, like, more willing to freak you out kind of version in the same way that Don Bluth movies like Secret of Nim, you know, are still basically the same thing as Disney movies, but they're just a little more willing to, like, scare you and freak you out and disturb you a little bit. So are you making the case that this isn't a horror movie? Oh, I think we rank it. I think we rank it as a horror movie. I think it it is, because it's horror for children. Like, if Curse of the Cat People is on the list, this should be on the list. I'm just saying that, like, I think when you look at this movie, that's the best context to understand it in. Like, that, that it's the dark side of a live action Disney movie rather than something that you should be comparing to it came from outer space or house of wax or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's move on to ranking. Oh, I have more stuff I want to talk about. Oh, we haven't talked about religion. (laughs) Oh, which is a big part of this movie. Yeah. This movie has a really interesting attitude towards religion. Every character in this movie is religious. Yes. Even though they all are in the same context of Southern American Christianity, which is a unique context, they all have very different attitudes towards religion. Um, You know, like, Cooper is reading Bible stories to the kids and is very nurturing and mothering, but she doesn't read the Bible. Yeah, she's, like, telling them through her own voice. Yeah, and and recontextualizing them in words that the kids will understand that are more, like, germane to their existence in, like, West Virginia, basically. But she's clearly, like, very religious, but it's a very, like, kind-hearted kind of religious, and it's a very understanding kind of thing. Then you have, like, Willa, who probably wasn't super devout until Powell showed up. Like, probably went to church and did all the things that you have to do to look proper. But, like, you know, she definitely was wanting some sex. And then, like, her whole thing shifts because she believes that Powell's here to save them. And so she's, like, just 
up there, like in his revival tents, like on the stage, like going like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman, so I'm a real piece of shit. And like, I'm terrible. And like, you know, you don't be like me, a terrible piece of garbage. Um, because I'm she's such like, a piece of garbage that my husband went and robbed a bank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's her, like Powell gets her into this mindset where she believes that it was her like desire for fancy things that made her husband go out and rob a bank and kill two people. So like she's the root of his sin because woman is the root of all sin. Even though we actually know for a fact from what Ben tells Powell in jail, he robbed the bank for the kids. For it was, food. Yeah. It was to provide for them because it's the depression. Yeah. So we know that Powell telling Willa that is like a lie and, and really twists her up. Then we have people like Icy who are just in that like, you know, oh, he's a preacher so he can do no wrong and like just bought into this certain kind of headspace and lifestyle where you just kind of go along with the crowd, right? As for Powell himself, I think it's funny like, so much of the fight with the production code was like, oh, we have to make sure people understand that he's not a real preacher. When the only thing in the movie that really says he's not a real preacher is when he gets arrested for the stolen car and the judge is like, you know, Mr. Harry Powell, I'm sentencing you to 30 days. And Powell's like, that's Reverend Harry Powell. And the judge basically is like, you stole a car. Like, Reverend, as if. Yeah. And that's kind of it. Otherwise, like, he even comes across more religious than, like, maybe in the book. In both, he pretends that he was the prison chaplain, right? And we know he's lying about being the prison chaplain when he shows up to the town. And he's like, yeah, I knew Ben Harper. He confessed to me. I worked for the prison. Blah, blah, blah. We know that's a lie. But the movie starts with Powell, and it starts with him going around and killing women. Like, we get introduced to him and his modus operandi before we get any of the other characters. And before anything else happens in the movie, the first thing that happens is he's driving along, and he's talking to God. Yeah. And we see Harry talk to God throughout the movie, most importantly, when there's no one else there. So we know that even though he's kind of fucked up, Kind of. He is fucked up. His religious faith isn't an act. Yeah, he truly believes. Yeah, because, like, he's he's saying this stuff and doing this stuff when nobody's watching, when nobody's listening, right? There really isn't anything in the movie that's telling you, like, he's not a real preacher. He's just crazy. He's just, like, he's he's taken a lot of the misogynist subtext of certain strains of American Christianity and he's made a text, you know, and he clearly like has a lot of problems with women, just like a deep seated hatred of women that he's then using that religion to like justify, but he's, he believes. And I just find that surprising that we get those scenes that show that, that his faith is genuine given that that was the big thing the production code had trouble with. I mean, he says in jail that, like, like, Ben is like, like, what kind of religion 
do you preach? Yeah, and he says, the religion that I've worked out between me and the Lord. And so it's like, okay, you're not real. Yeah, but his his faith is real, and that's yeah. the thing that's scary. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably why the code was like, make it clear that he's not a real ordained person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not necessarily that he's not, that he doesn't have faith. Like, that That was the loophole. <laughs> right. I do think that, like, it's still surprising to me. I still feel like, you know, the way that the code was very um, religiously based, that, like, they would allow a character like Powell to be shown to be devout. So, before we start ranking, I just want to call attention to two movies on the list that I think are good signposts for okay. us. The Curse of the Cat People is ranked at 93. Okay. And then I also wanted to note Invaders from Mars, because that also is, like, from, from a, a kid's, kid's point, point of view. view. Um, and that is ranked at 82. Okay. So, where were you looking? So, I think those are good signposts. I do think this movie's better than both of them. I would agree. Um... Curse the Cat People ranks so low because the horror in it is so extremely mild. And I think there's more horror here. Uh, Yeah. Even if, like, genre-wise, it's not always, like, the most forefront thing on the movie's mind. And I think that, like, just from a filmmaking craft perspective, it's better than Invaders from Mars. Yeah. (laughs) So I was kind of looking with my floor at... 37, The Queen of Spades. Okay. Which is like another movie where it's like, oh, this is like a ghost story and it's a horror movie. But it's like, also like being real artsy fartsy about it and kind of like (laughs) has an attitude like it's better than the genre that it's in. So I kind of felt like this was, you know, that's a good floor. I'm not sure this might be worse than Queen of Spades, but I think no matter what, it's better than The Maze, which is right below that. Rip Frog Boy. (laughs) And then as for, like, an upper limit, once we hit, like, 26, A Page of Madness, and then above that's, like, Nosferatu, and then it's Cabin of the Caligari, and then, like, Return of the Vampire, The Thing, The Wolfman, like, those all feel like too much movies that are, like, we are horror, and we're proud of it, and we're here, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. (laughs) Um, Whereas Night of the Hunter, as much as it has those horror aspects to it, it's not devoted to being a horror movie. It's more interested in being this nightmare mother goose Christian fable, which, you know, has horror in its makeup, but is not like definitively horror. So I feel like my, my ceiling is 26 and my floor is 38. Okay. So, I was kind of at a loss for where to rank this movie. Fair. I knew that it would not go above Isle of the Dead, which is at number 12. Mm-hmm. So, that's significantly higher than your ceiling. Yeah. But I was just kind of like, okay, let's try to find somewhere to orient myself. For sure. What kind of had me looking above Caligari, Nosferatu, is the filmmaking craft that sure. is going on here. Like, it's green, but it's not incompetent. Yeah, that was, in fact, something I did want to say. I wish Charles Lawton had made more films. Yeah. I wish he hadn't given up after this because of the bad critical response. Because what I will say is, Night of the Hunter has a lot of problems, particularly with pacing. 
and I don't think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. But watching it, like, hot damn, does it show potential. Like, this is a movie where, like, there are mistakes being made here for pacing, and maybe the emphasis is in the wrong places, but, you know, it's the guy's first movie. And if this is your first movie, like, let me see the second one. Let me see the third one. Like, you would have to think that whatever came next would be much improved, and we're already starting in a pretty good spot. Yeah. You know, so I think that's almost the bigger tragedy of this movie is that not that like it's this amazing classic and he never made any more, but that it's a movie that shows so much potential and he never made any more. I know that when a movie has potential for something, it always like hits you hard. Mm -hmm. I was also looking at murders in the zoo at 19. Sure. Sure. Which is a movie that is that high because of my emotional baggage. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, Night of the Hunter felt more terrifying than Murders in the Zoo for me. Mm. So my range, as a result of this mixed up way of moving around things, was 12, Isle of the Dead, down to Murders in the Zoo at 19. Okay, well, if we look between your floor and my ceiling, that's 19 to 26. That puts us at, like, Return of the Vampire? In the middle, yeah, that's the right middle of that, yeah. is Return of the Vampire. I think that it's it's tough, because the way that this movie evoked silent film and German expressionism really makes me, like, compare it directly to, like, Caligari, Nosferatu, um, Page of Madness. I kind of like those movies a bit more, but then you look at what's above them, like Return of the Vampire, the thing, it's tough. Because on it's like, okay, well, it's a better movie, but what's a better horror movie? You know what I mean? I do feel like we shouldn't be putting this higher than The Thing. Just like thinking of like it as a horror movie. Sure. I, I don't think so. Return of the Vampire is kind of goofy as shit. It's up this high because it's fun. It's what you want it to be, right? It's really enjoyable to watch. It's kind of goofy, though. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Night of the Hunter takes itself very seriously, and I don't mind that at all, but I can certainly see where critics who thought it was taking itself too seriously were coming from. Like, I can understand the people who were like, this is pretentious. (laughs) That's because when a director chooses such a distinctive style, you have to wonder how much are they drinking their own Kool-Aid. It's pretentious in the literal, like, meaning of the word, right? In that it has a lot of pretensions. Yeah. You know? But, yeah. Um, do you think Night of the Hunter improved upon the stylisms of German Expressionism? No. I think it references them really well. I think it uses them really well. I think it's a breath of fresh air here in 1955 to see some fucking stylism, but I don't think it improved on them because the movie doesn't use them consistently. Okay. There are, like, really great evocative scenes and moments in Night of the Hunter that are German Expressionist, but there's also stuff that's just like, hey, here we are in broad daylight, out on location, you know, whatever. It's not consistent. And then what do you think about Lawton's wish to evoke silent film and make people sit up in their chairs again. Mm. I think he could have done better 
if he had emphasized Powell's violence a bit more. I think the movie shies away from that. And the shying away from that is part of why I think this should be seen in the context of children's films. Because if it really wanted to be a film for adults, we should have seen more of that violence. Not in a gratuitous way, but in a way that really, like, you know, underlined it. I do think it succeeds at getting you to sit up in your chair, but not for the whole movie. I think you you slouch back down at parts. Particularly, if I, I can say this, the movie takes too long to end. Like, yeah, the it should have ended once like they take the kids away and the guy gets put into the car before yeah, getting lynched. Like, we shouldn't have had the Christmas scene. Yeah. Um, Powell gets arrested. We have this trial. We have this lynching attempt. We have all this stuff. And then even the Christmas scene, if you wanted to have it, could have been like way shorter. Like there's just all these moments where I thought the movie was going to end. Like Lillian Gish. What is this? Return of the King? Lillian Gish even does her like Judy Dench style, like look right at the camera and sum up the themes of the movie speech. And then she gets interrupted and then has more dialogue with John and then goes back to doing it? Like, yeah, there's pacing issues here, and I don't think it succeeds in getting you to sit up in your chair for the whole movie. I think there are moments that do it. So, I'm going to propose mm. for it to go at 28. Below Creature from the Black Lagoon and above Mad Love. Because you've made the case, and I would agree with this, that you know he's using German Expressionism, but he's not like improving upon it. He's not reliant upon it through the whole movie. So I feel like it, it can go below Caligari, Nosferatu, Kuwaita, Etipeji. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon was underwater in 3D, made me sit up. So I, I feel like it can go above Mad Love, which was kind of the, like, here's another love triangle thing that has a creepy bald dude. Um, yeah, okay. I'm I'm good with that. Okay. I mean, Mad Love has a lot to recommend it, has a lot to recommend in it, and it also has, like, a lot of cool German expressionism kind of stuff. I do think Night of the Hunter is better, if only because Mad Love is this weird thing where they're trying to insert a love story into an adaptation of a novel that didn't have a love story. And so, like, the novel's plot ends up feeling, like, vestigial. Yeah. It's it's a little bit weird. So, sure, let's do this. So, entering the list at the new number 28 is The Night of the Hunter from 1955, directed by Charles Lawton. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast.gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen to your podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Ratings on Apple Podcasts help the algorithm feature the show uh, to more people. You can also help us out by using word of mouth and telling a friend about the show, sharing episodes on social media. Um, all that's great. 
If you have the financial means, we'd also appreciate it if you checked out our Patreon on patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, and patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get special bonus content throughout the year. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Well, Ben, big movie for our week back from vacation. Mm-hmm. What is up next week? Next week, we have a real treat. If this was a treat. Uh, we are watching Ishiro Honda's follow-up to Gojira. Okay. Uh, he didn't direct the first Gojira sequel uh, because he was directing this. Uh, and this is Jujin Yuki Otoko, uh, known in the United States as Half Human. And the reason this is a real treat is we are going to be watching the original Japanese version, which is not commercially available anywhere and was pulled from circulation uh, due to controversies about the film's content and is never shown anymore outside of film festival screenings every 20 years or so. Uh, The American version is the only one that people usually see. Okay. So it's going to be a lot of fun watching Ishiro Honda's most controversial film. Well, stay tuned for next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.